This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture, with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Architecture and craft go hand in hand, but you may not be aware that the number of skilled individuals that can bring an architect's ideas to reality is shrinking and is approaching a critical low point. Finding skilled labor is becoming increasingly difficult, and if we don't address the skilled labor gap, we're all going to have to pay the price eventually. Today's episode was brought to you with support from Construct 2020. Hi everyone, I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're talking about skilled labor, or the lack thereof, in the construction industry. This is not a subject that receives as much attention as it should, but as an architect, I know that this is a problem. Currently, there is a major shortage of skilled workers in the construction industry, and without channeling people towards skilled trades, we are going to have a labor issue that this country hasn't faced since the late 1920s. We're recording today's episode live in front of a studio audience at the New Coffee Talk Lounge at Construct 2019 here in Washington, D.C. We also have a special guest, Brian Termail, with us today to talk about the skilled labor gap. Brian is the Vice President of Public Affairs and Strategic Initiatives for the Associated General Contractors of America, or AGC as is commonly referred to. Brian has been with AGC since 2008, and one of his responsibilities is to oversee all public relation efforts and communications for the organization and its members. In addition, Brian is also leading AGC of America's Future Focus effort, which is designed to ensure the association meets the needs of its future members. He also plays the lead role in getting local, state, and federal officials to act on the measures outlined in the association's Workforce Development Plan. Hi, Brian. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Well, we're happy to have you on here. And, and part of the reason we asked you to join us today is we know that you are intimately aware of the challenges that your members are facing, as well as the construction industry at large. So can we kind of just talk about that, just to kind of set the table? Yeah, I mean... So you, you can't get a group of contractors together and get them about 15 seconds into a conversation before you start hearing about workforce shortages. In sure. fact, we at, at AGC, we survey our members every year on the state of the labor market. And workforce shortages are the number one, and they've been this way for about four years now, are the number one concern for our members in the construction community. Our most recent survey we put out at the end of August is a workforce shortage survey. We do it with Autodesk. And 80% of our members who responded to the survey, said they're having a hard time finding qualified craft workers to hire. There are also shortages in, in kind of those front office and, and trailer office construction positions, mm -hmm. you know, the project right. supervisors, project managers, BIM experts, engineers. But the real shortage when we talk about in the construction industry are, are those craft workers, the equipment operators, laborers, plumbers, electricians, steel workers, cement masons, that kind of thing. It's a real problem. Well, let me do this. I want to start with defining the difference between unskilled labor versus skilled labor, as according to Google, where all things are kept, all right? Yeah, and from you, the internet, so it's That's right. And you can come in and correct this, so we're, we're leving spot for you to, to, to fine-tune this. But what is labor versus skilled labor? And so what I found was that unskilled labor, when measured by educational attainment, refers to jobs that require only a high school diploma, whereas skilled labor requires additional skills, training, or education and assumes that the individual has mastered a very specific set of skills. So I can see the pained look on your face. Now, I would have told before Bad before definition. I went and researched this, this is not too far from the assumptions I would have made as to how you would define a skilled laborer versus, I don't know, an unskilled laborer. Do you want to amend that or define it a little bit more specifically for us? I, I, yeah, that's just flat wrong. I don't know how else to put it. Uh, <laughs> and no offense to Google, like they're going to start like shutting down my, my search privileges. But... Um, so if you think about really any craft position or, or most craft construction work positions and the path to become an accomplished mason, the path to become an accomplished carpenter, the path to become an accomplished equipment operator requires an enormous amount of study, work, experience, and skill. Sure. Uh, I, yeah. I, I can't speak for you, for you guys, but there's no chance that you would want me to sit in the cab of some large yellow piece of equipment and operate it. I mean, the amount of damage I would do would be catastrophic. Sure. Part of my job, you go out, I spend a lot of time sort of filming and talking to craft workers. If you watch them work, if you watch how they go about their craft, I mean, it's exactly what it is. It's a skilled profession. These are, these are men and women uh, who have mastered some very complicated tactics 
who work with their hands, who work with their brains and do something that if you took anyone from the street, anyone, most of us with college degrees and ask us to do, again, maybe you guys are great at this, but there's no chance I could do it. If I do a little mudding, you know, home repairs at home and I mud, it looks like a topographical map of the Grand Canyon. Right. You, you know, like it's just, it's all over the place. Whereas sure. if you watch even a, a skilled sheetrock worker, which tends to kind of fall on the lower end of the pecking order of craft workers, those guys are, and, and women are magicians with their wrists and their hands oh, and the skill sure. they've got. So, and, okay. and this well, is let something. Me, let me ask oh, you sorry, this. You've no, got no, me no. going. No, no, no. I'm, you're passionate and I love that. It sounds like maybe the one caveat or descriptor that was left out in that definition that I had kind of pulled off the internet spoke to the experience level. Because what you're describing now is. Hey, to become skilled labor, it suggests that you spent time and effort to not necessarily learn something through education, but learn something through practical experience. And so there shouldn't be just that descriptor of how the education component fills into the definition of of what makes a labor skilled versus unskilled is that you have to consider that this person's been doing this for a long time and they've learned how to do it and they've mastered the ability to do whatever tasks that they've been charged with. At the risk of jumping ahead, in the conversation. Jump around. Uh, I think it gets to the heart of one of the challenges our industry faces when it comes to the workforce problem, which is at some point about 30, 40 years ago, we made this decision as a country that we were transitioning from this post-industrial economy to this knowledge-based economy. And for a lot of well-intended and and mostly right reasons, we decided that to be ready for that, we were going to shift everyone to this sort of college track. And that we were going to encourage most high school students to, if you want to be successful in life, you got to go to college and you got to end up in some office somewhere working in a knowledge job. And so we put that emphasis on learning in a classroom over learning in a work environment or learning a skill. And I think that not to keep picking on them, but that Google definition kind of reflects that cultural shift that happened over time to the point where, and we've seen this. The average high school student in the United States will never once be told by anyone at the school that construction or some other craft profession, there's still a lot of high-skilled manufacturing jobs in the United States, they'll never once be told that this should be on the menu of life paths you consider. Sure. Yeah. The only menu they're told. And that's a big issue. That's actually one of the notes that we we talked about. about, Yeah. Because we have the same problem, you know, if we bring it just like a a little footnote to architects. The number of people that don't go into the field of architecture because some information that a misinformed guidance counselor told them said, well, you're no good at math, so you shouldn't you shouldn't become an architect because it's very math heavy. That's wrong. That's just not right. And and I know that what you're describing is kind of a post-World War II mentality, you know, that everyone came back and they're like, you know, as parents, I know you have three children. I have a child. Andrew's got children. We all kind of have that idea that we want something better for our children than what we have. So we set goals for them that are not necessarily better or worse, but we're like, we want you to go a step further than we did. And when people came back from World War II, there were a lot of people that came up through work trades and they came back and they're like, you're going to be the first member of the family to go to college. Yeah. Well, I, you know, to speak to that, I, I was in high school in the late 80s and early 90s. And that's at that time period. All the shop classes and all that stuff were starting to disappear and lose funding because of the cultural shift that you're talking about. And even still today, I think some of that is happening where there's no more homemaking classes or anything like that. And kids don't know how to cook food, but they don't know how to cut or drill or do any other kind of stuff either. They just have no exposure to it whatsoever. Sounds like we're contemporaries. I was in high school in the late 80s and early 90s. And I remember sort of the end of shop class at Martin County High School. Yeah. And and even by the time we were there, it had been so disinvested in, if it's mm-hmm. grammatically correct, that, that it was really kind of an afterthought class for the folks who, who weren't doing well in school. In but, school. but but yeah. here's just setting aside the selfish need of the construction industry to recruit more workers, that one of the opportunities you get out of something like a craft training is that there are many students who don't learn well when they're looking at a dry erase board and a textbook. There are many students that, even if they never ended up working in construction, that they would be able to comprehend and learn and appreciate calculus and trigonometry by actually using it in a real-world setting. So there's something to be said for the fact that you could, I mean, the average pipe fitter is doing trigonometry all day long in their head. And and if you watch a carpenter, they're writing formulas on the inside of the sheetrock all the time. I mean, there's little math scribbles all over job sites around the country. Yeah, sure. So even if the students 
never end up in careers in construction. We are allowing more students to succeed in our schools if we give them kind of a broader range of, of opportunities on how to learn different skills than just in a classroom, looking at textbooks, watching it. I guess now they're like computer boards as opposed to dry erase boards. But yeah. Well, I want to yeah. I want to bring something up here because I think it segues into what Brian was talking about, and that had to do with the role of apprenticeship programs. So currently there are approximately 288,000 people in apprenticeship programs throughout the U.S. compared to 489,000 people who were in similar programs 10 years ago. In comparison, this is 10% of the number of people participating in apprenticeship programs in the U.K. So if you look at just the, just the sheer volume of what we're talking about, the number of people that are going into apprenticeship programs, it's dropping. And it's still, it started off a fraction of what a country size of UK is doing because they have a non-traditional, a non-linear kind of education system compared to what we have. Not everybody gets pushed into, I'll say, white collar jobs. Can you talk a little bit about some of these programs that exist? To answer your question, let me back up a little bit and say there was a period in time up really until the 1960s where the vast majority of construction workers, at least in commercial construction, came to their profession through organized labor. Right? Mm-hmm. They were in one union or another, and the unions ran, unions and the construction firms together ran and administered the apprenticeship training programs. So when, for a variety of reasons, which we don't need to get into, the industry went from one that was primarily union labor to one today where I think it's 13% of construction workers choose to be represented by a union, that when we went to sort of more and more folks coming from an open shop, we didn't at the same time expand opportunities to create the equivalent of open shop apprenticeship training programs. It's very difficult in this country to not be affiliated with a labor union and to get a certified apprenticeship program established. And to move this into sort of current politics, one of the things we've been pushing for in terms of workforce solutions is, hey, let's make it easier to set up these apprenticeship training programs because it's a great way to learn a craft. And the benefit of that, as opposed to going to a, like a career college or a technical college, is you're getting paid to learn while you learn the skill. Right. The apprenticeships are paid. You're, yeah. you're, you're, you're working. You're an apprentice, I mean, yeah. and, you're, and then you work your way through. And that's that's a very proven model. And we were excited at first when the, the Trump administration began talking about the need to expand apprenticeship opportunities and to really sort of reinvigorate apprenticeship programs in the United States. I think I'm influenced by the UK and, and Germany. But we were disappointed when the Trump administration came out with what ultimately would be called IRAP, Industry Regulated Apprenticeship Programs which was their effort to expand apprenticeships, but they excluded construction from that program. I saw and, even, that. and even if they hadn't excluded construction, frankly, we didn't love what they put together. They, they are essentially creating kind of a lower tier apprenticeship program. It doesn't have the same rigor and it doesn't have the same benefits of a traditional apprenticeship program. So the apprenticeship model is a very good one. And, and folks who go through an apprenticeship training program swear by it. And we've got a lot of member firms that only hire people out of apprenticeship programs and they love it, but we don't have enough. And that's one path, but there are many other paths into construction as well, career, you know, construction craft careers. And the problem is that we have equally allowed those to fall apart. I mean, the amount of money the federal government invests, what used to be called vocational education, is now career and technical education, is a fraction of what they invest in traditional four-year college education programs. This is at the federal level. That funding pattern tends to be consistent in all the states as well. So we're essentially putting our money where our mouth is. And, and that sends a loud signal, I think, to many families that, geez, if they're not funding these programs, if these programs aren't a priority, these jobs probably aren't a priority and probably aren't good for our children. So I, I don't necessarily fault many parents for thinking, I don't want my child to work in construction. If, there, if construction were a great profession, there would be more programs that, that talked about construction, which is why most data that we see, the average age for a new construction worker, a new craft worker in the United States is 28. The, they're being treated like jobs of last resort, not high-paying careers. That's a really interesting way to put it. And I will say, so when I was on the flight up here from Dallas just the other day, I sat next to a, a very nice young woman and she asked me, you know, what are you doing? Well, I'm going to watch a movie or talk to you, apparently. <laughs> and actually, I talked her ear off, I think, the whole time. She was trying to That's do some work. Say, she was yeah, trying yeah, to work. Uh-huh. But I told her, I said, hey, we're going to we're going to do this thing. This is the topic. These are the areas that we're going to be talking about. And I started running through some of the data. 
And she said that she had two younger brothers and what I was describing would have been perfect for them. But they weren't aware that that existed, so they went to the military. That's the route that they went. And I wonder, is some of this, because I have, I have, I don't know, 10 pages of data here that we may or may not ever get into, but it was the idea that, is this an outreach problem? I mean, because in her mind, I spent all of, I don't know, two minutes skimming the surface of what, what, what I have learned in the last week of what's available. And she said, I wish I had known that. I think the, my, the, the direction my brothers would have taken absolutely would have been different. Do you see this as a, a PR and outreach issue as well as uh, creating the opportunities for people once they hear about it to get that experience? I would say what's the bigger problem? Is the bigger problem actually the opportunity or making people aware of that opportunity and maybe putting a positive spin on that opportunity because it doesn't have one right now, right? It's actually, I think, both. Or it's oh, that's actually, cheating. Answer, You're that's, cheating. That's I know, cheating I know it's cheating. I'm it's sorry. Both. But like, I would say that we absolutely need, and, and there are, you could argue this is one of the challenges. There are many very great, very robust construction recruiting programs out there. And I, I don't want to miss anyone, but there's an I Build America campaign. There's a Build Your Future campaign put together by our partners at NCCER, which does construction education curriculum. There's a Go Build campaign. Uh, there's a Be Pro, Be Proud. There's uh, any number of state or regional recruiting efforts. And all those are essential. And all of those need to be better funded and better targeted. From AGC's point of view, we've made the strategic decision that the best thing we can do is to advocate at the federal, state, and local level for more career and technical education funding and for changes in laws that make it easier for local education officials to set up construction-focused school programs. Because that, that accomplishes two things, right? First, I think there's tremendous public relations value and having those programs back in more high schools. It sends a pretty loud signal to students and ultimately to families or influencers that there's a career to look at. Wow, you know, I went in and operated this stuff. It's pretty cool. It's not just walking around with a hammer anymore. You know, everyone's got an iPad on their tool belt these days and you can operate drones and you, there's autonomous equipment that you can control. And it's, it's really kind of cool. And then the, the, the second benefit is preparation, right? If you look at our, the data we collect, not only are our firms having a harder time finding workers, but they're increasingly hiring folks with little to no skills, experience, understanding of how construction works. And, and firms are having to invest more and more in training, how to operate safely, how to actually operate equipment, how to actually do the craft. So we're taking over more of that training. But those high school programs in particular would give young adults at least a baseline minimum amount of knowledge that allows them to get to the point where they're making a good living that much quicker. And, and by the way, you guys know this, the average pay of a construction worker in the United States is about 10% higher than the average non-farm job in the United States. And they don't require, most construction craft positions, they may require a couple of years at a career college or a training program, but they don't require students to amass the kind of college debt that we're hearing so much about. More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. So it has been about two weeks since we got back from the Construct Show in D.C., where we originally recorded this very Labor's Cheap Skill is Not episode. This was a quick trip for Andrew and me, but I still always enjoy traveling for the show. And how can you not love visiting Washington, D.C.? Definitely right, man. That's the best. We had a good time recording the Skilled Labor episode, and I hope that the 5,000-plus people... And the live <laughs> studio audience really enjoyed the chance to come out and check out the recording. Andrew, what did you think about the show? Yeah, I thought it was a great show. I think our podcast live recording event was stellar, of course. Of course. But I also know that there was lots of other activities to attend and sessions where you could load up on continuing education credits. I mean, we spent the majority of our time in the expo hall, and I was able to see and chat with a few of the vendors. Another thing that I found to be super cool was the hands-on workshop area in the expo hall. Yeah. They had attendees installing flashing, doing brick ties, and other sort of installation activities like hands-on live in a part of the expo hall. And it looked like a pretty cool way to actually learn about the materials that you specify. These days, it seems like I spend all my time in expo halls whenever I attend a conference or a trade show. <laughs> yeah. But that's where all the action is, other than the hotel bar. <laughs> I didn't get to participate in the fifth Emerging Professionals Day program that they had. 
But I heard good things about it, and it was led by our friend, the CSI Kraken herself, Sharice Lakeside. That event's a nice mix of seasoned professionals sharing knowledge and mentoring the younger emerging professionals. And I know that mentoring plays an important role in anyone's career path, so maybe next year they'll ask us to drop some knowledge. Next year, the show is in your backyard. Well, I mean, it's in my backyard too, but more like my neighbor's backyard, but definitely in the LOAA backyard. Next year's Construct 2020 show will be held in Grapevine, Texas from September 30th to October 2nd, and it will be at the Gaylord Texan Resort and Convention Center. That is literally 22 and a half miles from my backyard. I can almost hold my breath and drive there. (laughs) Well, as we both know, I couldn't do that. Hold my breath and drive there. (laughs) But it is a nice venue, and you could even make it into a family vacation. There's a ton of things to do right in that area, so be sure to put it onto your agenda for next year. There's a water park actually in that hotel. Like, in the hotel. Yeah. As a listener of the podcast, you'll just have to wait and see if we end up getting on the agenda for next year's show. Hopefully, we'll be back in the Expo Hall recording another podcast episode. But either way, you should make plans today to attend this conference, get some CEUs, do some networking, and learn from leaders within the industry. Again, this show will be in the Dallas area, 22 and a half miles from my backyard, at the Gaylord Texas Resort, September 30th through October 2nd, 2020. So go ahead and put it on your calendars right now. That's right. Bob will have a barbecue for everybody. (laughs) That's right. Here's some data I'll put out there. This is kind of taking two items we've talked about back to back and kind of putting a bow on them. Traditional college enrollment rates in the United States has risen this century. I think we would know that without having to do any research. But it has recently grown from 13.2 million students as recently as 2000. To 16.9 students as of like two years ago. Million. That's a 3.7 million person growth over a 17-year window. I don't know if that's good or bad, but let's say that's our benchmark. Meanwhile, trade school enrollment, which has also risen, has gone from 9.6 million in 1999 to 16 million in 2014. The question that I don't know is I go, well, how is that keeping track with the general population growth. This suggests that the pace for going to college is slowing down. And I think that has, there's financial reasons for why that might be happening. But it also suggests that trade school enrollment is increasing. It's certainly increasing faster than traditional paths of going to normal colleges. So let's put a pin in that just so we, so we have it to talk about it in a second. The next piece of information that I tracked down Currently, in the United States, there are 45 million people with student loans, and that loan debt accounts for $1.56 trillion. That is the second largest debt silo in the nation, second only to mortgages. I'm still paying my student loans. So... So, yeah, so the idea I'm almost done, but, I, you know, I was on the 20 year plan. So I don't know if trade school we have seen a rise. And part of this, there's there's kind of a big reveal that I might as well just reveal it now. What I don't know, and this is this was the one takeaway I wanted to get from our time with you today. It does seem like trade school and participation, enrollment, awareness, it's, it's all on the rise. And it has been for a while. The problem we're dealing with right now existed. It got created 20 years ago. And that's where the hole is, because every day, 10,000 baby boomers, you were going to get there for this. I know you were. Every day, 10,000 baby boomers hit retirement age. And that approximation is going to continue for 10 years. They made up a vast majority of the labor pool that we're kind of referring to as skilled laborers. When we had in the 80s and 90s, when the trade schools and the involvement in shops and schools kind of went away, it created almost like a vacuum which is not too dissimilar from what the architectural profession experienced back in the mid, like 2007, 8, 9. In that range, people stopped going to architecture school for about six or seven years. There was a huge drop in the number of enrollment. Well, guess what happens? Fast forward seven, eight, nine years, we have a, a, a vacuum of people that have that three to five years experience because they just didn't exist because we, we needed to make those people 11 years ago. That's when those people should have gone into the program. And I think that part of what we're dealing with now is something that's already happened. So a lot of what we're talking about here today is to keep this from happening again as we move forward, right? There's no immediate solution to this. This is 
this is reactionary kind of progress to make sure that moving forward, people know that this is a viable alternative. Well, and those that's going to keep growing too. Right? I mean, not the not the shortage, but the amount of labor that's needed is probably going to continue to grow. Well, we certainly see a tremendous growth in demand for construction and obviously hope that that continues. You, obviously, it's reasonable to expect that there will be some dips along the way, but there's so much unmet demand on the single family housing market that there are going to be a lot of opportunities. So there's a lot to unpack in what you just said, but let me see if I can tackle it in, in some semblance of order. At heart, we're, we're optimists, right? You, you, you can't be in the construction community or any element of construction without being an optimist. And, and we are optimists that that cultural pendulum is swinging in the right direction. If you look at the number of states that have enacted new increases in career and technical education funding or the number of community or technical colleges that have partnered with local high school districts and kind of created voc-ed or CTE programs overnight by simply saying, send your high school students to us. We'll train them. We've got the space. We've got the facilities. You don't have to create a program out of scratch. Just send them here and they'll get high school credit for it. I mean, so we're seeing a lot of the solutions. The closer you are to your workforce in terms of levels of government, the more you realize, geez, we're really educating a lot of in-debt baristas and not enough people to meet sort of high-paying jobs in our in our states. And ultimately, they want, to, they want their constituents to be happy and they want their employers to have workers so they don't sort of pick up and move to Nevada or somewhere else. The, the pendulum is shifting and we're optimistic. But yes, the, we, are, we have to play the long game in terms of what we're doing because we are talking about unwinding a 20, 30-year sort of cultural shift that also created sort of a 10 to 20-year deficiency in the number of people going in, in, into craft training programs. I mean, the average age of a construction worker in the United States right now is 48 years old. And you're right, the enormous number of people who are hanging up the tool belt and go down and go fishing and retire grows every year. And we spend a lot of time visiting with our member firms. They're actually holding on to those older workers and they're building classrooms inside their warehouses or their facilities so they can have them teach the new folks when they get them. So they're desperately kind of trying to retain those skills that are being lost at such a rapid rate. But the other reason why we're playing the long game and why there's no sort of immediate relief is that there always traditionally have been, at least post-World War II, kind of two main sources of work in the construction industry, domestic and immigrants. And the construction industry has been for much of the sort of last 50, 60 years, one of those pathway careers into middle-class lifestyles for a lot of immigrants into this country. But we've got a little bit of a policy schizophrenia in this country. We don't want our children to work in construction, but we also don't want people from overseas to come in and work in construction. And certainly, take, we're in D.C., right? So take D.C. market. We've got an enormous number of people working in the D.C. market in construction who are here legally through a program called Temporary Protected Status, TPS program, from El Salvador and to some extent they're from Honduras. And they were here for all the right legal reasons but the current administration wants to do away with their protected status and send them away. So we're at a point where 80% of firms can't find workers and you want to cut out a large portion of the D.C. area's workforce. Similar demographics, by the way, in Houston, where they're still rebuilding after the hurricanes. Yeah. We want yeah. to sort of we're in the middle of this sort of crippling workforce shortage where we've got member firms saying we're not going to bid on projects or we're going to put in higher bid amounts or we're going to put in slower schedules for projects because of workforce shortages. And we want to sort of literally put thousands of construction workers on a bus and send them out of this country. It doesn't make any sense to us. And, and, and frankly, it's just it's crazy. So, yes, we've, we've got to rebuild that domestic pipeline for recruiting and preparing construction workers. Absolutely. But at the same time, I think we need to be realistic and say that there are a lot of folks that could come into this country, make a great living, contribute to the American dream uh, if we just let them in legally. Because the current situation is we let so many folks in illegally or they get in illegally that we're also setting them up to be exploited, which isn't fair for them and isn't fair for legitimate contractors who have to compete against firms that are that are hiring undocumented workers and taking advantage of their of their unique status. So I'm not sure if I've unpacked every issue, but yes, we need to rebuild that pipeline because the damage is done and it's going to take years to fix. But I think we need to be a little bit more realistic about the role that immigration can play, especially in the short term in addressing some of these labor issues and appreciate that these are not folks who are going to come in and be a drag on the economy. In fact, just the opposite. They're going to contribute to the economy. The real drag is if we have unmet demand for construction, because what is construction? It's infrastructure improvements and it's development projects, right? I mean, those are sort of the two main types of construction we're talking about. So if we, if 
if developers can't develop and if we can't improve our infrastructure, neither one of those is particularly good for our economy. Our big fear is labor shortages will drag the economic growth down. Sorry, I didn't mean to get going, but how is the current labor force skills gap impacting the architectural profession? Because a fair number of people who listen to this podcast, they're architects and they're interested in being architects or they just have like an interest in the built community. And so sometimes they don't get out of the office enough to where they don't see firsthand what's happening or they're not the ones that can recognize the difference between this bid and a similar project that was bid four years ago and how things are different or why are things taking long. That's not something that they built up in their kit of parts here to be able to compare and contrast. Can we talk a little bit about the impact to the architectural profession that the skills gap is created for us? Andrew and I were talking about this a little bit before we got started. I think there are sort of two impacts just off the top of the head of these labor shortages on the architectural community. One is, if you look at how construction firms are responding to labor shortages, most contractors don't really have no in their vocabulary. They want to do the work. They want to find a way to do it. And if you, if you track the amount of money that firms are investing in labor-enhancing technology, that's going up. We're at this kind of point where labor costs are going up and the cost of technology are going down. But even more important, the adaptability of that technology is getting better. The reason that construction as opposed to manufacturing never went fully automated is because a construction project, everything changes it by day, if not by hour. And most robots don't know what to do when the screw's going in at a little bit of an angle as opposed to straight. You can control for those things in a factory, but it's harder to do on a job site, right? But the technology is getting smarter and, and actually adaptive. So this is a long-winded way of saying that construction firms are going to find ways to build projects using less labor if they can't find the labor. And one of those paths, it's not new tech because we've been building prefab and modular for a long time, is they're going to move away from these sort of bespoke buildings and design more buildings that are assembled from a sort of an existing inventory of different building parts that are assembled in controlled manufacturing sure. facilities. So that path, if that really takes off like, it's one of those trends that's t- probably talked about more than it's actually happening, but it's, it's got a potential. I have kids, so I have to go to Disney World. The Contemporary Resort was built modular. But if that happens... And we're building buildings that are kind of predetermined from a set of stock components. My sense is that's going to have an impact on the architectural profession. And I'm not sure how many people in the architectural community will get excited about crafting beautiful structures, kind of figuring out which six components make this building slightly different than the one next to it. So that's one impact. But the other thing to think about is I think that to sort of reverse it, as architects, I would suggest as you're thinking about how buildings are designed, Think about ways that buildings can be assembled using less labor. And I'm not an architect. I don't even represent architects. So I don't know that much about the, the wonderful science that it is. But can you build more with precast structures? Is there a way to design buildings that are going to require 15 people to build as opposed to 20? And maybe that means increased collaboration with the construction firms and the sort of construction community. Just kind of figure out, hey, let's, let's work through these solutions so that we can build structures. Well, I think that's one of the things that you know, we do. Uh, my firm does educational work sometimes. And a lot of times that's pennies on the pennies kind of work. And so we already try to do design work where we can either make sure that the trades are going to come in in the order that they need to come in and nobody has to come back to a job after this part is done or whatever, or to limit some of the work that gets done so that we're limiting the number of subs that have to be on a job because I mean, A, labor shortage, but B, that's more economical. So there's some of that I think that already goes on depending on what one, on what kind of work that you do as an architect. But I think as a whole, that's not really a common practice, but one that may need to be taken into account if the labor shortage continues to get worse. Well, I mean, this is a bit of a tangent, but more broadly, you had mentioned in the sort of in the intro that through our involvement in this future focus effort, we are working on the assumption that this construction industry is already really in the beginning stages of a pretty profound transformation in the way structures are built in part exacerbated by labor shortages in the introduction of new technology. And one of the things that one of the potential sort of future paths that could come out of this is this increasing blurring of the lines between architect, designer, contractor, subcontractor. There are certain types of construction that that people argue you can kind of vertically integrate the entire process under one roof. And it makes sense. Industrial construction, for example. Whatever trends were already happening because of the improvements in technology are getting exacerbated or accelerated by labor shortages. They're forcing firms to rethink their business model so they can continue to say yes to owners. 
I think it's an opportunity. It's also a challenge. If that's really a path, how do we anticipate that? And how do we make sure that we're that our respective segments of the industry continue to thrive? I think the other thing that, I mean, this is bounces back a little bit, but the idea that technology is becoming so important in construction, I think it's something that could change the public's perception, right? Because up until now, it's like, well, I just, all I have to do is be able to swing a hammer. But that's really not how it works anymore because the technology in the construction industry is just increasing so rapidly, like you said earlier, that they've got iPads on their hips and they're doing all these sort of things that technology is a part of it. So you have to be trained and smart to do that kind of work. You can't just be somebody that has big muscles anymore, you know? Last week, I was in South Dakota at this wonderful program at Southeast Tech, which is a technical college outside of Sioux Falls. And they were doing one of these sort of high school career days. They train high school students right at the Southeast Tech, but they had set up all these different stations to expose high school kids to what careers in construction look like as a way to recruit them into Southeast Tech. And some of the stations were sort of traditional kind of physical labor. There was a spot where you could pour out a pad of concrete. There's a welding shop, right? And there's a sort of carpentry shop. But there was a drone station, and drones play a huge role in construction, both in monitoring your progress and measuring sort of movements of aggregate and doing sort of safety searches. So then there's a section that they had on remote-controlled concrete drills, another section on sort of semi-autonomous construction equipment or equipment that you operate, but say like a dump truck, you operate to to where you're going to dump it. And then you get out and you go behind the dump truck. And you actually operate it from a remote control set on your belt so that you can actually safely operate it. So my takeaway from my you know two hours in South Dakota was that if you're looking at a career in construction and you go to an event like this, you're going to realize, holy cow, like, yes, there's some traditional physical activities. This is a very tech-heavy industry. And like I said before, there's a lot of job sites where every craft worker's got an iPad hanging off their belt because they're interacting with the BIM model and they're reporting in real time. And these aren't sophisticated hospital projects where I've seen this. These have been sort of wood-framed condo buildings built on top of like a Publix. (laughs) Publix is great, by the way. I don't work for them, but nonetheless. Yeah, I got you. Well, you know, I wonder how much of the controlled factory environment, you kind of touched on something that honestly, Andrew, well, Brian touched on it. And I was really interested in watching your face to see how you're going to respond to it. Because since you do school projects, you know, Texas for a while was considering the idea of basically doing stock plans. And I thought that's the gateway, right? That's a gateway to once you say here, we're buying six schools that all look exactly the same, which people in our part of the world, regionalism is kind of a big deal. You know, we want a thing to a building to look like the, the place and time at which it was created. And the idea that there's a stock book of plans, somebody buys it. Well, the other side of that coin is if that did happen, then you can start to compartmentalize the components that are within that school because now it's controlled and you don't have an architect designing this room. And then the next time they design that same room, it's eight inches bigger. Or yeah. So I would imagine that I was, I was convinced as a, as a guy who designs schools for a living, the idea of automation is something that you have very... Yeah, hot and cold opinions But about. as a technology guy, I really like it. But as a designer, yeah, it kind of makes me crazy. I mean, I just think there's a fine line in there of, of changing the way that you think about it as an architect as opposed to right now most of those kinds of buildings are blocky, chunky, sort of big blobs because really no one puts any effort into designing those pieces in those kinds of buildings. And I think that there is a possibility to change that so that there is care taken in the design of those things even though they're fabricated somewhere and assembled but there's some thought behind what happens in those as opposed to just a big concrete chunk i I would just add that i think that there there can be and should be good architecture in a modular or prefabricated structure they don't have to look like that highway exit quality in which i think is an example of that process but i think it definitely changes the role of an architect if as opposed to sort of from scratch but they're figuring out how to regionalize or local or make unique or make inspiring buildings out of a sort of an inventory of pre-existing components can i can i circle back to an earlier point when we we got into no, no. okay no. fine just, yeah <laughs> of course no go no, ahead no, yeah, go i ahead. was gonna say that well, andrew and i talked about this before we started and, and you kind of hinted on it bob when we talk about like where did the workers come from before we had workforce shortages right sort of this domestic supply I think one of the things that the construction industry has always benefited from is that just about every other segment of the economy at one point or another has been disrupted. Agriculture was disrupted in the beginning of the sort of 20th century, right? And then manufacturing got disrupted. 
And so, you know, our guys were hiring a bunch of former manufacturing folks. And who knows, maybe they're out there recruiting taxi drivers right now as that segment of the economy is getting disrupted. But we're running out of segments of the economy to get disrupted. So even as we work to improve our pipeline, get more career and technical education programs in place, we're still going to be competing with a robust economy in many other sectors. And I just feel like there are fewer and fewer sectors out there to get disrupted. Really, it's kind of construction's turn. So how does that happen? So I don't know if I have the answer, but as we think about labor shortages and as we think of what kind of changes they bring about, It's just something that we need to put in the back of our head that the new normal may be it's always going to be tough to find workers and we're never going to have a huge supply of workers like the industry once was able to rely on. Okay, well, let me ask you this, because this is something I have two I have two things that are rattling around in my head at the moment. One of them has to do with and I'm going to do I'm going to do to you now what I did to you a little earlier. (laughs) I'm going to I'm going to give you a bunch of things and then I'm going to rely on you to remember what I said. So. (laughs) You get the first, a notepad. The first one, that's right, no notes allowed. So the first thing has to do with when architects go to a party. There's not an architect in, in this room that hasn't had this happen to them. Someone finds out, as soon as they find out that you're an architect, they say, oh, I, you know, I wanted to be an architect, but I, I can't do the math or I'm no good at drawing. There, there's always an out for why they didn't choose the path that they wanted to based on some sort of misinformation. And... One of the things that architecture is an industry, and this is something that drives me absolutely bonkers, but a lot of people complain that architects don't get paid enough. And I go, I know a lot of architects that do really well, right? It maybe is, it all depends on what your baseline of comparison. Do you make as much as that person? Well, it has to do with market economy. It's the skill set that you have and the job that you're doing perceived of as having value, Right. I don't think anybody would stand up for any other person and say that construction and the people that do that work don't have value. In fact, I would think even these days they'd say it has an even more value to it because people generally don't want to do that work. That's one of the challenges that I think the construction industry has to battle. How could you convince mom and dad that this is a viable path? And money has to be part of that conversation. Compensation has to be a part of it. And it's the low-hanging fruit is to say, well... You're not going to come out of school with $120,000 in debt to pay for this education. You can actually go get that education. You're working while you're getting, so you're going to get paid, and then your salary can be X, Y, and Z. Have you guys ever done some long-term kind of financial studies to look at it and say, well, your career earnings, if you go down this route compared to a more traditional four-year education route, is X? Yes, we've been looking for, and actually just within the last two weeks found, and I think it was a professor up in Oklahoma who actually has put in a a construction's earnings calculator. So you can put in different professions. You can do a comparison between a carpenter and a computer programmer. So construction job and a non-construction job, right? Or a carpenter and a doctor. And it'll actually plot out your expected earnings. And in some cases, ultimately, the doctor is going to make more. But the path always starts higher for construction. And then it runs out kind of lifetime earnings, one career versus the other. And I think that's a powerful tool. But to go to the elevator pitch, we've done a lot of sort of testing of different messages, what works in terms of recruiting people, different demographic groups, and getting them to actually be interested in working in construction. Pay is a huge one. Not having college debt is a huge one. But there are, there are two other elements of working in construction that we found are particularly powerful messages. And one is this notion that you're part of a team. And that you're out there, you're not working by yourself, but you're actually sort of working as a team unit. That, that really tested well, a little bit more than I expected. And then the other one is this, this notion, and, I, and it's got to be the same for architecture, right? Legacy. That you're going to be building stuff that's going to hopefully last for decades, if not generations. Every construction worker I've met tells me the same story that they drive around town and their kid says, that's dad's bridge, that's mom's airport. That sister's, you know, uh, office building because they worked on that structure. And there's this tremendous pride. Every construction worker has this sort of pride in what they do. The other common thread is that most construction workers I've talked to say, look, I just the thought of being stuck inside in some fluorescent lit cube farm is horrifying to me. I love being outside. I love kind of the challenges that come with it, which is also a challenge, right? Texas in the summer, do you really want to work in construction when it's 110 degrees and really humid in East Texas? Do you want to work in North Dakota in January? 
Workforce shortages are one of these issues that essentially every other element of construction ties into it, right? It's not an issue that's operating in a vacuum. And and one of the things that's an important component of how we deal with workforce shortages is ensuring the health and safety of the construction workforce. Let's just call it what it is. It's a dangerous profession. And and until we get to zero, too many people are getting killed on construction job sites. So the steps that the industry are taking to improve the safety of the workforce and and more important to improve the health of the workforce are, are so essential. The other part of safety and health, and it goes back to workforce shortages as well, opioid addiction. So we don't have nationwide numbers, but in Massachusetts, one out of every 20 workers works in construction. One out of every six opioid overdoses in, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts happen to a construction worker. So, and if you look at, you had mentioned biggest problems since the 20s, we actually have one of the lowest male workforce participation rates in the United States overall than we've had since the Great Depression, because we've got so many people who are, frankly, this isn't just construction, addicted to opioids and or um, on, sort of out on disability in, in, in our labor force. So we've got to figure out a way as an industry to better protect against injuries and soreness in working in construction, and then identify and treat the potential for opioid abuse in the construction industry. So we've got to deal with that. We've got chapters, and we're looking at as a national organization, how do we better identify it, and how do we find alternative treatments? And again, this goes back to technology, things like exoskeletons that construction workers would wear to protect them from repetitive injury or soreness are, are going to be a factor but we've got to figure the health and safety aspect of the industry out if we're going to really be successful in addressing labor shortages. Something else. It's a complicated issue, right? But we got to think about all these different factors. Well, I'm glad you brought up the health and safety because quite honestly, that wasn't something when I was putting together my run sheet, I hadn't even considered. We need to do something affirmative to change the narrative that's going on in this country and reimagine the definition of what a good job means. We need to change the way people think about work the stigmas, the stereotypes, the perceptions, the misperceptions that are keeping our children from pursuing real opportunities that exist for them. Unfortunately, sometimes just because they're not aware that those opportunities exist. And that they're good ones. And that they're good ones. Do you have any closing thoughts you'd like to add? Absolutely. We need to remember that we're trying to undo sort of 40 years of cultural shifts that have kind of moved away from craft positions like construction craft jobs. And that the way to do that, our, our notion is, is more CTE, more career and technical education programs at schools. We need to do a better job as an industry appealing to the potential workers and educating them about the fact that what you do in construction today is very different than what you did in construction 20 years ago. And more important, in 5, 10 years from now, it's going to be radically different and a lot more tech-centric than, than we think of it right now. We need to sort of figure out these extraneous components that are so important, like safety and health. And when we talk about sort of building components in a factory, that might be one of the ways that we protect the safety of our workforce in addition to technology, right? If you're working in a factory, you can have air conditioning in the heat of Texas summer, and, and you, can have, you can have heat in the cold of a North Dakota winter. It's a broad issue, but when we look at what's happening at the states, when we look at what's happening with our member firms, when we look at what's happening slowly but surely at the federal level, we're not going to win this fight overnight, but I think that we're all heading in the right direction. Well, we'd like to thank our guest, Brian Termail, Vice President of Public Affairs and Strategic Initiatives for the Associated General Contractors of America, for joining us today, as well as the 3,000 people that are in the audience. Roughly. (laughs) You've been terrific and amazingly quiet for this recording. Brian, thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate you making on short notice to come out here and visit with us. Oh, it's been a lot of fun. I hope I didn't mess it up, but thanks for having me. I I, I think it's an important issue and... um, you know, we just look for every opportunity to talk about this. Well, I think you brought up a lot of points even that we hadn't in our research thought about. So I think it was yeah. great for, for doing that. We appreciate sure. it. Thank you, Brian. Thanks a lot. We are now back in my hotel room for <laughs> partying. Yes. <laughs> because it's time to do the hypothetical, and we did not include Brian. Unfortunately, he had to leave, so we didn't have time to do it. Although it, we think he might have had a good run at this. I think he would have a great run at it. So... But here we go. Here's the question. Here's what Brian missed out on. Sorry, guy. Yeah, sorry, Brian. Would you rather be able to detect any lie you hear or get away with any lie you tell? That's a good one, actually. Can I get both? I want both. I want both powers. You can't have both. 
Uh, okay, so everything either, either, every lie that I ever tell is believed by everyone. That's right. Or anytime someone lies to me. You can tell. I can tell. I'm going to go with, I would rather be able to detect lies. I think that's the only right answer here. Because that has a more of an impact on me, right? I mean, because it doesn't mean I could tell, under this circumstance, I could still tell a lie and it could still be believed, just not every time. That's right. You're not guaranteed that your lie will be believable. Yeah, but if you're a good liar, I'm not saying I am. No, but I think... But I'm just saying, right? You, but people lie to you all the time, so... They don't, I don't know if they lie to me all the time. I think, I think it's just human nature. And it depends on, again, to me, there's the variable of what is a lie. Like, are we talking about like exaggeration or is it like a bold, flat out, this is no way the truth whatsoever? Well. So where does that ban fall in my ability to be a lie detector? Here's what the way you need to look at it. Yeah, sure. Tell me. Right. <laughs> because I think that you would change the nature of your lies if you knew you were guaranteed to get away with the lie that you told. I think they would get just worse and worse and worse. Right. So it's it's not like you're, like if you evaluate and go, well, I mean, I, I lie occasionally now and I seem to get away with it. So I'm going to say that my lying skills are pretty good. Yeah. Right. No, that, that's not me personally. I'm just, that's, yeah, that's as the a, hype. As, a, as an idea. Yeah. It's talking gotcha. to it. Yeah. Right. But I don't choose to lie about things other than, hey, I'm leaving in 10 minutes. And, and I leave it in 15. And I already know that that's not going to be true. Yeah, exactly. Little white lies at the or moment. Or I only had a couple drinks with the fellas. Or I would have been home early, but... But there was traffic. Andrew and... had an emotional meltdown, and I needed to talk him through. Yeah, yeah, sure. He's in a bad place. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's those nature of lies, as opposed to, I've got a bridge in Brooklyn I want to sell you for... You yeah, know, exactly. Kind of thing. Yeah. Right? And I think so. I mean, I agree with that. Well, the other... Here's another consideration I had. Let's say that you could detect lies. Right? So, of course... I don't know, maybe this is just where I'm personally, I'm at in my life at this moment, but my brain instantly went to, how could I monetize this? <laughs> I never mean, even thought about that. I was, my first mind went to, my mind went first to, this is going to be awesome for my kids. <laughs> oh no, you just, you know, they're lying already. Yeah, but not, the older they get, the harder it gets to be, I think. But again, this goes back to, if you have this ability, it's almost like a super skill, right? Super yeah, power. superpower for sure. So I feel like this is now your job is to use this new superpower mm-hmm. full time. There's some uh, skill you'd have to bring to be able to determine whether or not someone believes what they say is true versus whether or not it's actually true. Well, I guess and then that leads into my, or goes back to my question is what, what is the power exactly? But yeah. So, but if, if I could go down to my local police precinct, did you kill that guy? No. Mm, he did. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, like, I, I feel like I'd have to do some of that. On the psychic network. Baha Porson. Truth finder. I go, that's part of the responsibility. Unlike if you could fly where they're going to, they're going to black bag you and tie you down and needle you to figure yeah, out. Yeah, figure out all your stuff. Yeah. I think that you could probably. Yeah, this would be an easy superpower to hide in a way. It would. You know, like, wow, that guy's like, oh, he always knows. Right, but that's right. But you sit there and go, still, at the end of the day, this is how you're paying your bills. Yeah. So you have to find out, like, do you get, do you start soliciting your skills to Fortune 500 companies for corporate espionage and say, did you, are you copying data files that you shouldn't be copying? No. Yes, he is. Right. Or do you go to the government? Do you go to the military? Do you like, I mean, there's got to be something where you're, you're trying to be beneficial and at the same time, Make, make some pay. money. Make some money. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I don't know if I would go to that extreme, though. Pardon me. Can you imagine trying to go to the military and go, hey, fellas. I, I can tell the truth all, or, all I can, the time. I yeah. know. I know if you're lying or not. They're like, no, you don't. I go, mm, that's not true. Because <laughs> I can. And they're like, I was like, okay, so you got to put me to the test. I'm better than any lie detector that there is. I mean, I, I can't can be beat. You cannot. I know. Like maybe, maybe how do you know? Do you have like a, do you get like a little tingling? Cause here's the thing. What if I, what if on this superpower that I gave you, like there's like a bad side effect, <laughs> like every time you actually used it, like maybe you couldn't turn it off and on and people go, have a nice day. You hear a voice in the back of your head says they didn't mean that. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. And, and like, all you do is go through your life and you're just profoundly just inundated with the lies of everybody. Not just like bold face, I didn't kill that person kind of lie, but the have a nice day. How are you doing? It's so mm-hmm. nice to see you. And all you hear is, no, it's not. They don't really, you know, 
I don't like you. Why, leave me alone. Why it, are you here? It could be really bad. Move faster. Like how yeah. do you, maybe you can't turn that off. So all you know all day long is everybody's lies. I would assume that that would be what the question means in a way, right? If you always know what somebody's lying, then that's all the time. What that could suggest is that it's like, it's an ability that you can use when you choose to use it, as opposed to it's forced upon you all the time and you can never, it's kind of like, well, if your superpower is invisible, sometimes you're invisible, sometimes you're not. Yeah. If you can tell if someone's lying, maybe you say, all right, now I want to use my superpower to find out if they're lying versus I don't. What I'm suggesting is if I told you that you couldn't turn it off, I might have a different answer to that question. I'm not sure that I'd want to hear everybody all day long, nonstop, just when I walk by casually and I hear somebody say something, it's a beautiful day outside. No, it's not. You know, I, I think that would profoundly impact you in a very negative way. Yeah, probably so. I would agree. But I don't know how I'd deal with it if that was the case. I mean, like if, if that was the way the power came through and that's how Isolation. It had to be. You'd have I to know, isolate you yourself. Put headphones on all the time, walk around until you wanted to act, talk to somebody. You to hear it. Oh God, can you imagine? Yeah. It would just be a constant noise, right? Could you imagine sitting in like a meeting? Oh my God. With like, you know, 15 people or something, just a meeting that you would go to like now on a regular basis and hear all these people talking about things and you're just like, oh. Yeah. So, so <laughs> you're lying. You're lying. You're lying. You're lying. You know, just around the table. Okay. So let's, oh. here's the next thing. So that suggests, since you and I both have that opinion, that everybody lies all the time nonstop. <laughs> <laughs> that at every moment, of every, just yeah, about yeah. everybody at some point, because we're not saying everyone's telling whoppers. Yeah, no. I think it's a, <laughs> an exaggeration or misrepresentation of the actual truth, probably. Yeah. At least a, a smidge, right? And I guess that's my thing is how how sensitive is my lie detector? Yeah. Like, what, is it a shades of gray or is it binary? Yeah. Did you do, like, yes or no? You can always tell, you can only tell lies that they're yes or no. Yeah. Kind of answers. Is then that would be, a, that would be much more. That would probably be a little better. Better. Yeah. But Mo if it was just better. anytime somebody said something and it was not true. But what, how would that work though? Would you just, again, like you said, would you just get a little tingle or would it be like you hear the actual truth that's in their mind? Yeah. Right. Or what if it was like a, you got an itch somewhere? Yeah. <laughs> My nose itches every yeah, time somebody. Like, yeah. You, the way you know that that person's lying is because it makes your eye spasm or something. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think you'd go, maybe I'd want to be able to tell the really good lie yeah. at that point. But what would you use that for? That's what I'm saying. I don't really see any benefit to that. There, I don't think there's anything that I could ever lie about that's going to really do anything for me, which is why, again, why I didn't choose it. I mean, yeah, I could lie about something, but I'm never going to be in a situation. I don't think that I'm just going to really, it, they have to believe me. My life depends on this lie. Yeah, you're not going to tell whoppers that, again, I think it because it comes back to how does this personally benefit Andrew? <laughs> Well, exactly. You know, how can you monetize your ability to lie in a way that doesn't totally unravel your moral code? But even if, even without a moral code, I mean, how do you, I don't know, I guess, I mean, con artists lie all the time. And but that's they how believe, they make money. Yeah, but. they believe it. You say something to someone and they believe it. That's like depositing a thought in somebody's head. That's incredibly powerful. I guess. You owe me ten thousand dollars. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, you're right. Sorry. Yeah, I do. I guess I could, then I could do it. Yeah. That. That diamond bracelet in that in that jewelry case. Hey, that's my that's diamond bracelet. That's actually mine. That was mine. Yeah, you like, took that from me. Yeah, and they go, "Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, see that got that's now we just went there. Yeah, you. I I brought that in to have it cleaned, and you've got it on display. Yeah, again, Boom. give it to me again instantly. Life a crime instantly. I know. Superpowers do that to me, man. I think that's super. I, you know, I didn't really think of this as a superpower question, but I, I guess know, but it, it kind of is. It, it kind of is. Yeah, in a way. But I th actually, though, see, I don't think the lying part, though, I mean, if I was the, the best liar or whatever, but I believe, believe my lies, I don't think there's a positive way to spin that, right? Like, there's no there's no way you could use that for to benefit anybody as you could with the lie detector. Well, no. You, you could, could use it, but how could you lie to someone to benefit them? You could go. You're not going to die. You could go to North Korea and say, those are not your nukes. Those are my nukes. And you get back to me. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, I guess so. Something like that, right? right I'm yeah. sure. I'm sure there's there's things. Yes, lying is. I wasn't going that grand scale, but yeah, there you go. All right. It's again, save the world. <laughs> <laughs> I go North Korea's <laughs> nuclear arms. That's what. That's what. That those are my, mine. That's yeah. my, those are mine. I got a track out front. <laughs> you, you built those for me. Yeah. Yeah. You're uh, supposed to give those to me. 
And they're like, we were. Yeah, but then the U.S. government comes after you because you've got all these nukes no, that you're not supposed to have. I'm working with the U.S. government. I gotcha. I guess so. Right? I don't know. That's crazy. So we we agree, right? We're in 100% agreement on this for the, well, maybe 98% agreement. I guess. We both went for the same detect lies, but then depending on the ver- severity of that, yeah. Or how we could tell yeah, what that involves. We're both like, okay, that would be terrible. We would not want that. But how can we keep or maintain a moral code and use our ability to make anyone believe the lies that we tell? That's hard. I mean, even now I sit there and go, I could probably find a way to do some good. But how long? You're like, I'm going to be good. And you're going to go, that's my, <laughs> I left my double dip ice cream sundae here. Right? The one I already paid for. I've, like, heard, oh my I've God. already paid for those wings and beers. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, God, yeah. I'm such a bad person. I think it's just human nature. I need to come up with hypotheticals where there's no way for me to manipulate it into, into a life of crime. <laughs> where I go to a life of crime. It's <laughs> bad. Yeah. I'm not feeling good about myself after this question. I was. I until we decided it. We fell into the rabbit hole of, uh, we're going to make some money doing crime things. Yeah, but that's always what it is. <laughs> we always go to a life of crime. I guess. Maybe we should get paid more for what we're doing and we wouldn't go to a life of crime. Maybe. But I don't know. I think it still just sounds fun. <laughs> Life of crime? Well, but I mean, when we get to these things, like, oh, it'd be fun to do that, right? There's so many lies that are going through my head. I go, ooh, I could do that. Yeah, right. That might work out pretty good for me. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. So I'm going to call that a wrap. Thank you for being with us today for episode 36, Labor is Cheap skill is not if you like today's episode head on over to apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app and subscribe so you can get fresh new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks to your podcast player of choice while you're there please leave us some feedback and if you would please leave us a five star i got the skills rating be sure to visit the original life of an for show notes links info and photos from this episode thanks so much for tuning in cheers take it easy everybody and if it's easy take it twice Ha, 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 ha.